Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. It is a huge honour to have Nadine Gordimer here, who has come from South Africa to be with us. Um, we have an hour today. She's also going to be lecturing tomorrow. Um, it has been a cliché to always set her in the context of Fervort and Mandela and Tutu. It is at least as important to set her in the context of Kafka and Camus and the greatest literary pantheon in which she sits. We hope to talk today a little bit about her life as a writer, about some of her books, and I know that there will be questions about some political activity as well. But Nadine, may I first welcome you. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Um... <laughs> you could be doing this a lot, <laughs> but please treasure every word. And can we do more, the, more of the applause at the very end. Sorry. Well, I'd just like to say that I've been here once before and I enjoyed it so much that it gives me much pleasure to come back to you. Can we start with that tiny library that was your education? In the little town, mining town in South Africa where I lived? Yeah. Yes, we can indeed. That's the start of my life as a writer. Your life as a writer wouldn't normally have grown from that mining town. How was it, A, that it had a library, who had access to it, and what in it was it that appealed to you? Well, it wasn't such a small town, you know. There were many big mines around it. So it had um, grown, really, in, um, as the mining industry grew. And uh, it must have had, I suppose, some people among the town councillors, the first time I thought of it who indeed started the, the library. And the great thing for me was um, that my mother entered me to the children's section when I was six years old. I could read by then. And uh, the librarian was a great friend of hers. So very soon the librarian just let me loose. I could go into the adult library. And so I was like a little pig in clover. And <laughs> It meant, too, that I began to read books that you know, were not in the children's library, that I extended my, uh, my reading capacity in this way. But what was the context of the town? Because the books must have taken you on wonderful journeys far away from the sort of society that you were living in. Yes. Well, the context of the town was, as I say, it grew through the beginning, through the discovery of gold, which was in, um, in 1886. And um, then they followed the deep down seam of the gold, which led from Johannesburg, where it was discovered, which was the first mining camp. It led east and west. And the mining town was, was called Springs. I don't know why. There was no spring that I can think of. Um, but anyway, there it was. And so I lived, my, my family were in this... Um, small town springs, and that's how I happened to be born, on the east end of where the seam of gold went. What were the books that appealed when you started reading into the adult section of the library? Well, I was reading at the age of 10, 11, and D.H. Lawrence, <laughs> yes. Uh, 
not, not the banned one, that, that, came, that came later. And E.M. Um, e. Forster, Passage to India, was one of my early loves. As a child, of course, I was a great Dr. Doolittle fan. And uh, later on, when I had grandchildren, I was passing on, indeed, from my childhood to my own children and from my own children to grandchildren, Dr. Doolittle. But um, he doesn't seem to be as much read by children anymore. I think he's been killed by uh, TV characters. But it was English literature? It was English literature. And what was your awareness of other languages at that age? Well, of course, I suppose in translation, I soon progressed to reading, for instance, Balzac. Um, and then in, in English from other parts of the world, um, my contemporary, she was then, Eudora Welty, the great American short story writer. Were there any African voices that were available in this library? Well, no. There were one or two who had been translated, early writers, but um, they were not around when I was beginning to, uh, to read. And there were very few published in even in African languages. Uh, a great wealth of um, oral poetry and storytelling, but um, not, n nothing printed. There, I think quite a lot was written down. Would you as a child go to hear oral storytellers? Oh, no, because you must remember that black and white were completely, we're living in a different world. You only knew um, the people who swept the streets and who were servants in the houses. And at what point did your love of this big and, and fantastically selected English literary tradition key into you the idea that it was a facility that you also had, or a, an ambition that you wanted to pursue? Well, this brings me to what I always tell young people who are beginning to write. Forget about creative writing schools, please. <laughs> I even, for my sins, I once conducted one in America, but never again. Um, <laughs> And the, my students were supposed to be very carefully selected. And they were lovely people, intelligent and so on. But they could all have made good journalists. There's only one who indeed began, was, had the ability to, and the drive and the imagination to write fiction. So my only advice is to anybody young who wants to learn to write is to read, 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 read. That's why libraries are so important. This doesn't mean to say that you imitate the writer you admire. You cannot. Every writer has a completely individual mentality and approach to life. But that you learn to become critical of your own writing because you can see what can be done with a word. And when did you start the process, having, having seen what other people could do? When did you start physically writing it down? Well, when I was about seven, eight, nine years old, there was a, a weekly newspaper that had a children's page. And they invited children to send in their stories. So I started writing uh, children's stories and sending them in then. And did you know? And they were published and, you know. Did you know even then that that's what you wanted to do? No, I intended to be a ballet dancer. And I was pretty good when I was... 
But uh, various things happened, and uh, fortunately for me, because I would be all washed up by now, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I somehow doubt it. You know. <laughs> um, but when I was <clears throat> nine years old, I wrote my first poem, and I hope it was almost my last. I have, unfortunately, much as I love and read poetry, I have no, no possibility of, ri of writing it. But it was very strange because you were asked to write an essay or a poem on um, a political figure, and there was a kind of list of them. Now, when South Africa had a Boer Republic, when the Dutch, indeed, were in charge there, the hero was a man called Paul Kruger. And so my poem was about Paul Kruger. Very strange when you think that apartheid came out of this and there was a, a big opposition to apartheid. But first of all, I was glorifying Oom Paul. <laughs> just, 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 just scroll back for a second. You, you say that you wouldn't begin to know how to be a poet. And yet, one of the extraordinary things about your fiction yes. is the incredible, meticulous control of the prose. Now, for, for those of us who are readers, not writers, how do you know about poetry and prose and that you have a preference or a, or a facility for one and not the other? Well, you see, poetry is the ultimate extract of um, many ideas. It's bringing it down to the fewest words possible. It's the most disciplined of all non-fiction writing. And I've discovered, indeed, I'm not up to that. After Oom Powell, that was the end. <laughs> that was it. Yes. <laughs> I might quote, indeed, I've just remembered the first couple of lines, if you'd be interested to hear, <laughs> considering the history that came afterwards. Um, noble in heart, noble in mind, never deceitful, never unkind. <laughs> that sticks. <laughs> Just, can I just, I'm sorry to, I don't mean to, pre, I do mean to press you on this. Yes. Because there's something that you do that very few other writers do. Maybe only um, in our time, um, Margaret Atwood, to the same degree. You manage the two different scales of, of long-form um, novel fiction and short stories. And there's a wonderful... Uh, a wonderful image you give in, in one of the essays that's, that's published here in Telling Times of, uh, of a short story being like a, a firefly illumination. Can you, can you just develop that thought for a moment about what, what stories do that are liberating and what novels do that are liberating? Well, to, to go from a beautiful image like the firefly to the um, very simple one of the egg... When I think of how I write a short story, and of a short story in general, it's like an egg. It comes to me, and I think to anyone who writes short stories, complete. There's the containing shell, there's the white, there's the yolk which has the rebirth in it. So it comes to me complete. I know the beginning, I know the middle meat of it, and I know it's complete. In closure, I know the last word. Whereas a novel 
is developed in stages. I would also know, of course, the beginning and the end, but it may change in getting it there. There's a kind of um, map somewhere in me that is, I'm going to get to this crucial stage and then there'll be another crucial stage there or then developing out of the characters. But of course, as you invent the characters or they invent themselves through you, um, they change. They grow, they decay, all sorts of things happen to them. So there are stages in the novel, whereas the egg is complete, the short story. And I think that is nearest to the poem. I, I, I don't want to crash the mystery of this, but I, I have to know, what you, when you say, I know it complete, Yes. do you mean even to, the, even to the, the language and the tone and the cadence of the words, or do you mean you have the idea complete that you are then going to render into handwritten script? No, more or less I would have the cadence. I will know, for instance, is it going to be a first-person narrative? Is it going to be an I story? Is it going to be told objectively by someone else? And by whom? And in what relation, if any, or only authorial? So somehow this comes to me along with the, the idea of the story. And have you ever had a short story that then grew? Or, or is, it, is it always the case that the egg comes home? I'm afraid it never grew, no. No, it was, uh, when, when, the, when I start thinking, when a novel is beginning to come to me, I know. But a short story has never turned into a novel. Take, for example, the, the book for which you won the Booker Prize, The, the Conservationist. What did you have when you were setting out then? First Did you have, you have marrying the character? or No, first of all, a correction. You do not get the Nobel Prize for any particular book. You Sorry, did I say Nobel? I thought I said, I meant Booker Prize. Sorry. Oh, the Booker Prize. Yeah. What did I get the Booker Prize for? Uh, not... <laughs> oh, now let me think. Um, no. you, you, got, you happened to get the Booker Prize for the conservationist. For the conservationist. Well, the conservationist, to me, I'm, I'm rather glad I got a prize for that. <laughs> Because um, I think it's one of my best novels. I'm very critical of my, my range of novels, and that one I think, I, I think well of. It also has a strange ongoing connection, which has somehow, history has caught up with it in my own country, and indeed in, uh, in the whole of the continent on which I, I happen to be born. And, and live. Way back, there's a book of stories of mine which was called Six Feet of the Country. I don't know whether anybody remembers it or knows it. Well, but we all know what six feet is. It's a grave. Eh? In this story, um, it's a story on a farm, and one of the black workers gets murdered. We don't know by whom. And um, the farm owner, a white man, calls the police. The police are not particularly interested. And instead of taking away the body, um, they just cover it, throw it down at the river and some reeds and things on top. And there it just rots away. Well, time goes by and the local people, the workers on, on the farm, are absolutely appalled about this. So the farmer gets in touch again with the police. They take the body away. 
But this is not what the farm workers wanted. So they um, indeed protest heavily about this. And um, then the body, or the supposed body, is returned to them. And they bury it, kind of symbolically. It is both their own man and whoever this person was. So this person has no name. He has no background, he's not recognized, he's a nothing. But he now has, he's taken possession of six feet of the country because he's there forever. And this is strangely symbolic of the whole question of returning the land to the people, the whole apartheid question. So years go by and then I come to write The Conservationist and that of course is all about who owns the land the white man who uses it as a, uh, a weekend cottage and a, a place to take his mistress of the time, um, sees himself as a conservationist because he's, he is looking after the land. He doesn't work it himself, but he has his, uh, his workers there. So you can see that the idea of to whom does the land belong was somehow working its way through, through my mind and through my imagination. Yeah, I was thinking of that as an egg that was um, maybe rolling into something bigger as a meal. Yeah. Um, you had Mehring, though, when you started out with the story. You had, you had the man himself, the character. In, what, in the Mehring, in, um, in The Conservationist? Yeah. Yes. Did you start with him? Did you know that he was your vehicle? Well, no, I happen to know the, the connections between life and what one makes of it are quite mysterious and very often misunderstood. Sometimes journalists say to you, was this character based on so-and-so or that? But Graham Greene once said to me, the only time that I ever had the privilege of talking to him, that people don't understand. No, nothing can be a book, a character which is A or B or C. What happens to us, because you never know anybody completely. You can live with somebody for years, you know one side of them, and the person who knows them in their professional capacity knows another side. There's no such thing as knowing anybody completely. We like to think we do, but it doesn't happen. And he put it, I thought, most beautifully. He said, you sit in a bus, or you might be in a crowd like this, and you notice someone next to you. You look at their body language, you notice whether they turn and whisper to somebody. You get an idea of them, and it fascinates you. And you invent an alternative life for them. And I think this is a wonderful way of explaining how fiction works and how it can relate so remotely to a real being. Do you, I'm, the, the idea of real beings seems fascinating to me because reading many of your novels, mm -hmm. you get the wonderful sense that your territory of exploration is, is partly generational conflict, is partly um, transracial passion and its implications. Do you, in that extreme situation in which you were writing in the yes. 70s, 80s, 90s, do you feel that that gap between perception and reality for your characters is more acute than for, say, somebody who had spent the same amount of time in, in Britain or, or 
I was going to say America, but taking segregation out of America, Britain or, say, France? No, I don't think so. I think wherever you live, the social and political and personal circumstances, which are all connected, um, they are all fantastic subjects. There's all a depth in all of them. It doesn't mean to say uh, would, for instance, if Tolstoy hadn't been in Russia at the time, could he ever have written War and Peace? Because of, for obvious reasons, if we think um, of the title. These extreme situations of living in a place of conflict, of course, intensify the connection between the personal and the impersonal, the precious from outside. But I think if you're a real writer, you can make the death of a canary important. It becomes part of the whole chain of life and living. Did you feel kinship with people in, with writers in Eastern Europe? Did you think of, of Kundera as more of a kindred soul than, say, Roth or Bello? Or is that a just completely spurious connection? Um, no, there would be more of a connection with, with Kundera. But of course, it would lose the language collection, connection, because and then I'd be reading him in, in translation. And um, I only much later got to know him personally. How much does the necessity in a repressive regime of some form of lying, whether it's lying about what you know about your friends or, or not disclosing truths that will lead other people into danger, how does that impact upon a, a writer whose job it is to tell truths? Well, of course, that's the big question. And this puts a writer to a test of integrity that other writers don't have. Um, anywhere you may have to censor yourself, you think, because you might offend somebody. Or in cases where, such as in your own country, there are big um, battles between uh, Democrats and, uh, and, and uh, Republicans and so on. Uh, conservative, I mean. Um, <laughs> no, we are, you know, in many ways, part of the United States. <laughs> yeah, well, no. At least they think so. Yeah. But it is more intense if it's in a, in a, a country of tremendous uh, conflict, dividing the grassroots from the branches up to the sky in, in the tree, yes. But that, again, is a test. And that is why, of course, I think, if you have any integrity at all, you find your books get banned. I've had, I had three of my novels banned, and I had, I put together a, a volume of poetry by black writers, which was all, of course, contrary to the whole idea, never mind their opinions that were embodied in the, in the work of the apartheid regime. So that was banned as well. There was nothing of mine in it, but I had uh, collated and edited and got published this wrong thing. But three of my own books are banned. Why were they banned? Because they dealt with subjects or um, attitudes, indeed, that were against um, apartheid. They were against the idea that blacks and whites were absolutely different beings, as different as um, a frog and, and, a, and a dog, you know, really, quite different. But what then should I and others like me have done? 
not right, do something else, or pretend that everything was fine and tell fairy tales about the life that we had, transpose it into some other, I don't know, some other uh, era or whatever. So in other words, of course, you had to write, I think, what you were learning, what you were discovering, what you knew about other people and yourself and your interactions. So when I went ahead and wrote, uh, indeed, A Guest of Honour, World of Strangers, The Late Bourgeois World, they were all banned. But I had the great advantage I was writing in a world language, so they were still published abroad. I do want to return to the world language thing, but just to pick up this, this point about what should a writer do. In your um, Nobel acceptance lecture, you very generously quoted from a vast range of international writers. And on that very subject, you quote Gabriel Garcia Marquez as saying that, uh, uh, forgive me, it's not verbatim, and no. he probably said in Spanish, so let's freely translate. Um, you say that the duty, he said the duty of a writer in, in a time of revolution is to write as well as he or she can. Now, what I'm intrigued by is the English language audience that you had was largely outside South Africa for a large part of that time. What feedback, if any, did you get from English language readers in your own country? Because while you were held up as a great icon of, of, of freedom and liberation and, 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 and heroic campaigning, I wonder how, in the outside world, how the intimate details of every life was received by the people who were reading you at home? First answer is it was banned and they couldn't read it. You couldn't buy it, it wasn't in the libraries. Um, a few people who really cared very much would um, smuggle, smuggle it in. But you were stopped at the airport and, and they asked, you had to show books that you were carrying. Well, I myself became an expert at this, not with my own books, but there were other banned books. And I found that you simply went to a friend's house here in London, wherever it was, and took a cover from one of the children's books, you know? <laughs> and there it was, um, Dr. Doolittle on the outside. <laughs> and uh, the, the people who stopped were not particularly well-read or literate anyway. <laughs> and, and so they would look at the cover and, you know, boom, and you'd, you'd go in. And um, this, this lasted really, it helped a lot. But, I wouldn't have, have dared to bring in my own books. I would have felt that somehow that would be, not be right. So one just had to wait for the books to be, for the time to come when, like many other things, the books would be unbanned. Uh, the language issue is, is obviously huge in South Africa. How many other African languages do you speak? Well, I'm unfortunately a very poor linguist. Um, and this is people. One of the questions journalists don't ask and you know, there's, as you know, a little piece in that book. One of the ones they don't ask is, um, what is the greatest regret of your long life, if you look back? Now, we're not talking about the personal relations here. Um, my great regret is that I, I do not know an African language. There are nine African languages. We have 11 languages altogether. That's English and Afrikaans, which are both foreign, even though Afrikaans evolved from Dutch and this and that and the other in South Africa. But of the nine indigenous languages, I am 
absolutely dumb. I cannot speak them. I know a few little phrases here and there. We all know a little bit of Zulu because Zulu, um, Isi Zulu is the, the uh, somehow most generally used and it, it's part of the group of Nguni languages where each is mixed a little with, uh, with, with the other. But that's a great regret in my life. I do not know any, any other language. What is the, uh, forgive me for, for the generality of this question, but what, what is the state of literature now in South Africa where things are not banned? Are there generations coming up, as far as you are aware, even if you haven't read them in the original, who are writing in these other nine languages? And yes, we're going through now a time indeed of great encouragement of people writing in their own languages. There again you get to the problem of publishers, and the publishers have the problem of distribution. Um, in the rural areas and in the smaller towns, there really aren't bookshops, and the libraries are hard up and indeed cannot buy all the books that they would like. And they tend to buy then the books that are in English and from all over the world, because most people, whatever their colour, if they are sufficiently literate, these are the books that they will read. Right. You've been tremendously critical of the idea of methods of publishing and distribution that are not traditional paper and, and print. Is there any sense in which the fact that so many people in South Africa have mobile phones is there any sense in which that digital freedom would allow you to countenance the idea that some literature can be passed between people who are... People who can afford these, these um, mobile phones and so on um, are indeed privileged already. We, the large part of our population, certainly in the rural areas, cannot afford these things. And then there's no library, and there's no library in the school. So any gadget that requires some kind of battery or some kind of, of power, other than just your own ability to read, this becomes a privilege in itself. Okay. Can I just, before opening this to the floor, because I know people want to ask questions, ask you two questions more just about your own writing. Um, one of them is... Uh, is asked by a, a tremendously acute and perceptive journalist um, yourself, who, in the questions that journalists never ask you, yeah. you ask, as a liberated woman, would you nevertheless prefer to have been born a man? Um, it, can I append to that, as, as, a, as, a, as a liberated woman writer, mm -hmm. would you nevertheless have been, prefer to have been born a man? No, absolutely not. I only wish that as a writer um, that I could have experienced everything to have been um, a man, to have been a gay man, to have been um, a lesbian woman. But these are experiences all around me that I haven't had. And writers are all greedy to be everybody and to experience everybody. Do you think, given that you have been at the top of your game as a writer for so long, which is... Uh, spectacularly unusual in, in, uh, in writing circles, that you have honed your art now. Do you now feel 
master of prose. Is it getting easier? No, no, it's never been hard. It's always come very naturally to me. I've never set myself to doing something that I knew I didn't have the right equipment for. Um, I've been lucky in that everything I really wanted to, let us use the word say, to create, um, I have gone ahead without thought whether I could do it or not for the reason that I knew that I could, I could do it. Um, but I should think that uh, the question is, now that I'm so old, will what I write now be um, a come down, so to speak? Will I have lost something? And will I have the judgment to recognize it and to say, right, enough, you've done what you could? Because I've seen this as my sadness with um, a couple of other writers whom I admire, that um, alas, the last book is, is a poor book because what was there was beginning to go and not recognized by the writer. But who knows how life fools you that you may not recognize that you have, you haven't got it anymore. Yeah, no, I'm really glad I didn't ask that question. That would have been <laughs> a step too far. Nadine Gordimer, thank you very much indeed. Can, can I, at this point... We have two roving microphones which tend to work best when they're a, a couple of um, inches away from your mouth. First one from the gentleman there, please, and then from somebody on this side. Let's use the roving mic all the time. It makes it so much easier if you can. Yeah, there's one on each side. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm wondering which of the classical writers have influenced you and how did they influence you? About uh, classical writers, must we go right back to the Greeks, or can it be more? <laughs> let, 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 let's, stick, let's stick just for yes. convenience sake to the canon of English literature. No, I wouldn't like to do that because okay. I have been. <laughs> Seneca it is, then. Yes. Well, I think like anybody who has been able to read with some uh, desire to, to move out of the, the common use of, of the language and common understanding. I have to say, it sounds a cliche, Shakespeare, yes indeed. E. M. Forster, important to me. Um, Eliot, Auden, now, who else in, in prose? I've seen Forster, haven't I? It's very difficult because I have read widely, in, uh, obviously, in, in my own language, which is yours. But a great influence has been Marcel Proust, whom I first read in, in English, in English translation when I was young, and then later when I could read French, I read again. And indeed, the last few years, I've suddenly thought with anguish, my God, there are some wonderful books. It's very important to me that I better read again before I die. And so I began reading the, the great A um, la recherche du temps perdu in, in the original French from, from the beginning. 
So these books have been important to me. Um, of course, Chekhov, in translation. As a short story writer, I learned a great deal, indeed, from Chekhov. Um, Dostoevsky. Would it be fair just to, 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 to just pursue the gentleman's point? What particularly, given, let's take Proust, for example, as, as the one non-English literature writer that you've, you've mentioned, apart from Chekhov, obviously. Um, what is it particularly from Proust that you feel might have influenced you, as opposed to just having given you pleasure and awe at how brilliant yes, you Yes, to me that's a very interesting question, and I have to go back to look at the, the root of this. Uh, when I was a young girl, the idea of being a female, young female, in the sort of milieu in which I lived in, in a small mining town, was, right, you finished school, and then um, you, if you were musical, perhaps you became a, a music teacher, you might become a teacher of dancing, you worked in the post office or in one of the big, one of the stores, but this was just an interim period because you were growing up, your career was to be married, married and have uh, children, this was your your fate and indeed your, your career in life. And from this came your idea of what love was. Love was indeed finding the husband and then you would fall in love with him. It was a very strange idea of being brought up in adolescence when you're first coming into understanding your, your, your sexual um, part of, of your life. Now Marcel Proust, to me, showed what an immensely complex thing love is, the love for a person of, of uh, one sex or another, and how this was indeed a basic relationship in human relationships. And it really had nothing to do with the fact that you must get married and, and have children. So I think he, he gave me, uh, how shall I put it, um, an idea of freedom in a very important emotional area of life that uh, I didn't, didn't know about, and also of its tremendous uh, frustrations, difficulties, the uh, trouble that you might come into from it. Um, also, he, he's often regarded as being a snobbish writer, but on the contrary, and I especially find that rereading him, he was indeed so critical of the, of the aristocrats and the snobbish people, and whether intellectual or of, of birth of the time, that uh, he really showed that these are not human qualities. The idea that you are better than someone else and that you should be looked up to and that you can look down on anybody. That's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And there's a question there, and then one from the lady right down in the front, and then the gentleman there in the hat. I hope you will forgive me for veering off course onto something political. For those of us who are members of the anti-apartheid movement for many years in this country, does us little people picking the likes of Tesco's may have any effect in your opinion? I didn't get the last sentence. So, so, yeah, Sorry. You say the last... As a member of the anti-apartheid movement in this country for many years, does us little people have any effect on the ending of apartheid in South Africa? Did ordinary people? Yeah. Rather than the big businesses. In the big business. No, rather than no, the big rather businesses. Than oh, yes. the big business. No, well, I'm amazed that, you know, when I even think about the big businesses, they just wanted to keep on doing big business, and their, their, any anti-apartheid activity was simply like a charity 
on the side. The, the real impact indeed came from people en masse among the, the huge black population and um, a considerable portion of the white population. Not so considerable, but in terms of the size of the population, only 10% of the population, it wasn't bad. If you look at some of our anti-apartheid heroes, are people who indeed lost their lives or spent years in prison, such as uh, a black man Mandela did, there was this core of people who did a great deal to bring about the end of apartheid, this core of white people who joined in the black cause, not just because it was a black cause, but because it was the cause of human justice. And I think there's an, uh, an interesting aspect to that that doesn't exist anywhere else in Africa. Among the Indian population, which of course started in South Africa with, in the 1860s, with the arrival of indentured laborers from India coming to work in the sugar fields in South Africa. Then came, of course, the wonderful period when Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was there practicing as a lawyer, and started the Indian National Congress, which then joined the alliance with the, the um, African National Congress. So that here you had this immigrant Indian population indeed being part of the struggle of blacks and indeed of all of us for freedom in, in, that, uh, in that country. So there I would say that so-called ordinary people, people from the ranks, people came, rose up out of this and had a great deal uh, to do with it. Yeah, question down here. I suspect that most people in this tent and certainly in this country have no idea what it is to live in a society where books are banned. We can only imagine that and we get, I suspect, very complacent about it. Do you feel living through what you've lived through and having written consistently, urgently, beautifully, passionately through that, that we can be very complacent in the so-called liberated democratic Western world about how important literature and indeed other art forms, but particularly literature and therefore literacy really are. I mean, obviously not in Hay on Why, where the urgency of literature is alive and well, but do you, do you worry about the state of reading and writing elsewhere in the world at this point in time? Oh, I do indeed worry about it. I think that uh, the freedom of expression this is a battle that we all have to fight all the time. You can never be complacent about it. Um, of course, it's very difficult. Do you then allow people to um, write about, advise people to take up violent means? This is the only form of censorship that I would be for. And now in my own country, where censorship was indeed so terrible that you couldn't say anything that anybody might find offensive against the... the uh, the black-white division. Now, according to our, our constitution, we have complete freedom of the press. We have no censors at all. With the one exception, if you advocate violence, you can come to court in the ordinary way. What you have written will not be banned. You've got to come to court and hear it argued out. I think this is a very big um, advancement. But of course, there are many other countries now um, in some of the... Um, Islamic countries, it's very strict indeed, the censorship. Um, and I don't know, I think wherever you'll find changes of government and the desire of people to stay in power and not to be spoken against, you have to keep your eyes and ears open to see that 
unlikely as it is, it might come to you in this country or that country or the other. Uh, question from the gentleman here, please, and then from the lady at the top, and then I'll come to you and you. Um, two questions. Uh, firstly, just to say, um, I've got an independent bookshop in Cape Town, and it's very, very expensive to come all the way to Wales to listen to you. So I hope we'll be able to entice you to make a slightly shorter journey sometime in the next while. Well, you've got a great um, deal still, sir. Sorry? Sir. You've still got a great deal. <laughs> I did indeed. Uh, two questions. Um, the first one is just about the, the sort of transition from uh, being a writer, being an artist in apartheid South Africa to post-apartheid South Africa. A lot has been written about that, um, not just about writing, but about the arts generally. Um, and just wondering about how that felt for you uh, post-94 and the period after that, whether that changed your approach to writing um, the, the, the novels and short stories that came after that. And secondly, I don't know how much uh, time you get to read sort of uh, contemporary South African writing, but um, there's obviously a very, very vibrant publishing scene in South Africa at the moment. Um, are there particular authors who you are uh, very fond of and, and appreciative of, of the work that they're doing at the moment? Okay, should we do the first one first? Yes. Um, how do I feel about writing post-apartheid? Well, it's often asked for me in a different form, and I'm not alone. M most South African writers have been asked this, what are you going to write about now that apartheid is gone? <laughs> it's an astonishing thing, I think, for people to think of, uh, because life goes on. Indeed, life has opened out, as I'm sure my friend over there would, would uh, confirm. So there is more to write about. What I would like to see with our new writers and some of the older ones, um, writing more about the present. But there is a tendency which is natural, but I hope it will come to an end soon, it will find its fulfillment, and that is writing about the past, especially among our black writers, because they feel there's so much that was not written about then or that was written about and, and never published. So that even among very young people who could were only really uh, five or six years old when, uh, when we got our freedom. Um, they tend then to go back to how people lived and how their parents and grandparents lived, the unspoken about life. Whereas I think the things that are happening around us now, how people relate to one another when, they, when it's now completely free, it's your own personal view. But of course, there's still the idea that in some families, if there's a, a mixed marriage, it's looked down upon. The one side, the one partner has let down his or her relatives, and uh, this kind of uh, prejudice still goes on. So I would like to see more about that. I would like to see something about how children, we include how children who go to school together, how they relate to one another in a different way. Than they, than they used to. In other words, there are wonderful subjects everywhere. I see this among my friends. People move out of the black ghettos and moved into to the so-called white town. And then they found um, that it really was, there were all sorts of differences and prejudices in this suburb. So the next thing is they've moved and they've taken an apartment somewhere else. People finding their way in a new way of living together. Now, the second question was... Just give us the name of one young South African writer that you would recommend to us whom we may not know. Well, I happen to have brought with me, indeed, 
um, a, a list. <laughs> this, uh, this really wasn't a prepared question. But uh, we question, haven't got time for that. So I do want to mention something that I think is absolutely extraordinary. You may think it's a bit way out, but there you are. Um, the question of tradition in, in South Africa, of following your own tradition, pre-colonial, there is, I think, a very good move to write about this, to bring it out, to, to flesh it out in, in characters. But it also brings into question the, the um, rituals that were traditional. We had a few months ago the whole question of, um, in, in, uh, I think it was, last, it was in Zululand, the business of killing, become a young man um, if you attack a killer bull with your own hands. So three or four or five young men then kill the bull. It's extremely cruel, cruel. The animal suffers terribly. Its eyes are gouged out, and it's so there's been great feeling against this. Whereas some people say, but look, this is part of our tradition. Of course, they could come up with bullfighting in Spain, which is also part of a tradition and, and very cruel. But how do we deal with these things? The whole point of sacrificing an animal to forgive yourself some sin or to show that you are a man. Uh, this seems to be, there are, it's time now that this was indeed put into back into history. And I'm just speaking for myself, but there's a strong feeling about this. Then there is the very personal question of circumcision. So in some, not in all of the um, African traditions is this so, but in some it is. And lately with this revival of uh, proving we must keep our own traditions alive, there has been a whole spate of times when young boys, not just used to be young men, but now it is young boys of 10, 11 years old who go to twice a year, there are these circumcision schools, they're called, in, in summer and um, in winter. We've had these horrifying statistics of boys who have died because this simple operation has been done badly. In other words, there used to be special people who were trained, indeed, to do it, just as the Jews have somebody special who circumcises babies, and you don't hear of them dying. But this has got to such a stage now that um, it's a real problem, and one doesn't know how to put a stop to it because then the traditionalists say, well, this is, this is neo-colonialism, that you don't allow us to go on with our own uh, tradition. It so happens that a young man has written a book called A Man Who Is Not A Man. It is clearly autobiographical, but it is a novel. And it is about a young man who indeed, here again materialism comes into it, it's now cheaper. You can get people who will circumcise your son for half the price that it will be done by the recognized expert. So this young man in the novel is circumcised and Italy is his botched, he is terribly ill, and indeed he lands up impotent. But that isn't the end of it. What shocked me in this book and that I found indeed very necessary to think about it, if we're talking about the relationship between tradition and um, what we regard as a, a respect for human feeling, he is despised now by other men. 
because he is a, not a man. And I find this a daring book, not, but not sensational at all. And I really would like to see it published abroad and read, because I think it has a relation to um, many aspects of, of our life, even in terms of, um, of terrorism, um, of uh, whether you indeed, uh, in order to defend your faith, if somebody does a, draws a cartoon that shows the, the God that, that you revere uh, in some uh, compromising and regarded as disrespectful way, uh, this person then deserves to die. I mean, we had that with Salman Rushdie 10 or 15 years ago, did we not? For a writer. So um, I would like to suggest that this book might be... What's his name? Sorry, the writer. Now, I have to take my bag because he's got a long, unpronounceable name. <laughs> it's published in South Africa, but not here. At present. Actually, we should ask our bookseller. What, what, what's this guy's name? Okay. Well, I have it here. What's the series of Where is it? Anyway, it's called A Man Who Is Not a Man. Yes, I'm sorry. Oh, here it is. A Man Who Is Not a Man. And his name, first name is easy. Tando. T-H-A-N-D-O. Tando. And his surname is Mkwalazana. M-G-Q. O-L-O. Z-A-N-A. You say that beautifully. I was having a Jamie Lee Curtis moment there. Um, there was a question from up the back. Yes, madam. Um, Joe Malemi's been um, on the news a lot over here. Um, he's got a, a lot of very negative coverage. And I'm talking about killing the booze and then kissing the booze. And, um, and I, I know a lot of what he says is very pugilistic and clumsily done, but at, at, at its heart is this idea of this terrible poverty still remaining. Um, and I, I'm just very mindful when you were talking about six foot, um, how sad it is that so many people are still economically disenfranchised and you know, land ownership is still such a big problem. And I just wondered if you felt that in speaking about apartheid in the past tense all the time, we as a global society were perhaps in danger of um, not acknowledging that apartheid actually in an economic sense still exists and that um, you know, while there used to be a small, wealthy, white elite, there's now a small, wealthy, white, black elite, and there's still this massive underclass. Um, and I, I just sort of feel, in speaking about apartheid all the time in the past, it kind of takes our eye off that ball. We're talking about economic apartheid. I gather, yes. Well, of course, it's very interesting. The um, main sources of wealth in an industry and the mines are still in, in white hands. But of course there is a, a new, there's a black middle class, a black bourgeoisie, some of them in big business, and indeed some of the people in, in high positions in politics are also in big business now as well. 
The trouble is that when people then move into high positions and high earnings in the, in the industrial and the economic world, they tend then to have the same kind of ideals and mores as their predecessors. This is one of our big problems at present. Now, you might have read lately, I don't know whether it comes into your papers, you've got other things, had other things in your mind, but there has been the question of the mines. Now, the mines being our original source of wealth and development, as you know, in our country. Gold, of course, is not so important anymore. Platinum, of which you have plenty, is very, very important. Um, and coal, too, that we have a great deal of coal still. But the idea of the nationalization of mines has been proposed particularly by the youth group of the African National Congress. Um, it has been only the day before I left, strongly denied by our president, by Jacob Zuma, who says that the African National Congress has no intention of nationalizing the mines. But the fact is the pressure is there. Um, and as, as I say, a primary source of wealth um, in our country, it means that there is a kind of economic part out there. Less and less in insurance and in industry, because what started with the white boards appointing a black individual just to show that they were indeed transforming, but now there are a number of are powerful people indeed in, in, um, in big industry in our country. I can't tell you whether the big one, whether the mining industry will be transformed uh, or not, or how soon. Eventually, I'm sure it will be. We've got time for one last question, which is from um, a lady down here. There will be time to ask Nadine more things while she's signing books afterwards in Pemberton. When, we, uh, when you were asked to, uh, to give the names of the writers who had influenced you, um, it was marked that the names you gave were all men, and indeed all white men, and I just wondered whether you have been equally influenced by women writers who you might argue more closely reflected your experience, for instance, when growing up. She did say Eliot, by which I take from your poetry to say it mean George Eliot rather than T.S. Yes, Eliot. George Eliot. Yeah. So sorry. I took it as T.S. Eliot. I took it as T.S. Eliot. But whether there have been any others? I'm sorry. I'm were, were there any other, um, apart from Eudora Welty and, and George Eliot, any female writers who particularly in, influenced you? Um, no, I don't think so. I never think of whether it's a female writer or a male writer. And indeed, you may know that um, I was on the shortlist for the Orange Prize in your country, which is, of course, for women only. And I surprised my publishers by saying, thank them for the honor, but would you withdraw my book? I don't think that prizes should be given um, with the provision of what sex you come from. The next thing is, we will have prizes for people with blonde hair, people with, people with um, blue eyes or black eyes, let us leave this kind of distinction out of it. This doesn't mean to say that I don't think there's a great deal to be done to bring women into, into equality with men. But I think let us not start mingling with, the, with, uh, with, uh, with literature, which, thank whatever gods may be, has come from men, women, from gay men, from les lesbian women, from everything and everybody. 